I am heavy, heavy, heavy bored. The first book I ever read by Cormac McCarthy was The Road, his post-apocalyptic novel about a boy and his father surviving in the aftermath of a world-ending event. I devoured it in two days. It had come out when I was finishing up high school, and my parents had picked up a copy. It was on every book list that year in 2006, 2007. I couldn't help but love it. His style his harrowing prose that somehow always manages to have a very simple elegance to it. It stands out, listeners. And I will go as far as to say, Cormac McCarthy is a writer that you can recognize from the style alone. If a random excerpt of any one of his books was placed before you, you'd be able to know it was him point to it and say, that's Cormac McCarthy. And that's a serious mark, listeners. That's a statement on American literature, a force. And as many listeners will already know and probably agree with, McCarthy is an American literary icon, an icon. Make no mistake about it. A writer that even Harold Bloom said was worthy of the canonized greats. And he is, listeners. He most definitely is. What McCarthy has done for the elevation of the Western in American literature cannot be overstated. He is the bar. If you are attempting to write even a vaguely Western-style novel, you are competing with Cormac McCarthy. And if I haven't been clear already, let me make it perfectly clear. Yes, he is a living master of the craft, listeners. Pick up any book by him and enjoy yourselves for a few days. Even his lesser works. You won't be disappointed. But this brings us to today's episode. The Cormac McCarthy novel that we came here to discuss. The Crossing. The second book in his now infamous Border Trilogy, is the topic of today's podcast. And I'm glad that I was finally able to read a book that I want to endlessly praise. And of course, criticize just a little. I have a fat paperback edition of the Border Trilogy, all three novels in one, All the Pretty Horses, The Crossing, and Cities of the Plain which, of course, will be linked in the description of this episode, listeners. I've said before on the podcast that I love a big, fat book with multiple novels in it, and this one is no different. A good way to be able to read the entire trilogy at once. And there's actually a funny story about this particular book. I first picked up a cheap copy of this exact book, The Border Trilogy, with all three novels in it, many years ago, about 10 years or so, 
I believe, and I brought it with me on a flight from Houston to Baltimore. I like to bring multiple books with me on longer flights, as a 200-page novel can easily be read in a four-hour flight or so, and I like to have options, listeners. My wife was with me, though I don't think we were even engaged at the time, and I was in the middle of All the Pretty Horses, the first novel in this Border Trilogy. And at some point, I was carrying the fat paperback with me through the airport, in a rush, of course, my carry-on bag hanging off my shoulder, wheeling the large suitcase my wife and I shared at the time. And as we were leaving the airport, we went to a parking meter to pay for our parking, and I sat the book on top of the meter as I was fuddling with my credit card, anxious to get home. I hate flying, listeners. In fact, I hate travel in general. But of course, I do what I have to do. Even if I'm grinding my teeth together from the moment I step into the airport to the moment I get home. Anyway, in a rush, I paid for the parking, took my ticket out of the machine, a long line was forming behind us, there are never enough machines at rush hour, listeners, and I was grinding my teeth anxious to get home, I left the book on top of the machine. At the BWI airport, my bookmark still in it. Long story short, I rebought the book, the same edition, used, very cheap, and it is in less than ideal condition, I must say. It appears to be a former library book, listeners, but I brought it with me on another flight recently, back home, and restarted it. I read All the Pretty Horses, the first novel in the trilogy, on the plane, and loved it. And as I started the second book, The Crossing, I decided I should do an episode on at least one of these novels. But of course, I'm a completist, and I want to do an episode on each of the novels to complete the trilogy. But, unfortunately, on a plane, I didn't prepare for all the pretty horses, so I will have to forego that idea as much as it pains me. But I did want to talk about this novel, listeners, The Crossing, from 1994. And while I admit it may not be as good as, say, All the Pretty Horses, it is still a damn good novel. A coming-of-age story, following Billy Parham, a 17-year-old boy, back and forth and back and forth again, over the border between mostly Texas and New Mexico into Mexico itself in the 1940s. Billy is lost, looking for something. Like all young men, angry and not knowing why. Dragging a wolf over the border to Mexico to set it free. Not exactly sure himself why he's doing it. While growing to love the animal, in a way, and the animal loving him back. And that's something brilliant about McCarthy's writing. While very masculine, it captures the unknowns so well. The uneasiness, the searching. Even a book like The Road has elements of this, despite its bleakness. But while reading this entire trilogy, I couldn't help but think back to Larry McMurtry's Thalia, Texas trilogy. As many listeners may know, a trilogy of westerns about small-town life in Texas in the 1930s and 1940s. 
The most famous of that trio of novels in that bunch being The Last Picture Show, the third and final novel in Larry McMurtry's Thalia, Texas trilogy. But my personal favorite of that trio, as a side note, is the second novel in the series, Leaving Cheyenne, a heart-wrenching little novel about three friends. A very simple Western novel that brought me to tears when I read the ending, as McMurtry is so good at capturing the heart of things, the tragedy in even the smallest details. But more importantly, the way he captures the simple-minded folk of a rural world, characters that can't even begin to contemplate large philosophical musings that are always present in literary novels. And I admit, listeners, there is something about a small-town life, a rural life, that automatically creates fascination. Perhaps it's in the romantic nature of it. Tight-knit, small communities where everyone knows everyone, and that leads to small happenings setting the towns ablaze somehow, in gossip of some sort or the other. Or maybe it's just a good vehicle to drive drama, technique, whatever the device. McCarthy manages to capture the same thing in all of his characters. In fact, I'd hold up McCarthy and McMurtry as writers who write about those specific types of rural backwoods characters better than anyone else. Cowboys, loners, losers especially the way the characters have a limited self-expression to them. In McCarthy's case, it's a very matter of fact. Really, a major difference between McCarthy and McMurtry is McCarthy tends to be more sterile, cold almost, in his violence, which allows him to get away with more violence. As readers of Blood Meridian, what many call McCarthy's masterpiece, will be well aware of where Larry McMurtry's style is more tender, heartbreaking. But it's this coldness in McCarthy's work that makes it stand out. The violence always very sterile, so matter-of-fact. This shines through in the dialogue especially, a matter-of-factness. Even in the scenes where Billy is being told stories with large philosophical lessons, which there are a lot of listeners, Billy doesn't quite manage to comprehend it. All the wise old characters that are giving him wisdom, he just has simple responses, or often no response at all. Often these philosophical musings are meaning-of-life type philosophies, thoughts that can't be made sense of without rigorous study and academic training, or even more so, life experience, lived experience. But Billy's response, or lack of response, to these philosophical musings has a realism to it. Something that McCarthy is widely praised for, of course, but it's a marvelous blend of what I hesitate to say is simple-minded, but not stupid. The exchanges almost break your heart in the way they come off. Billy not knowing what to do, unable to grapple with the unfairness of every situation he finds himself in. Billy and Boyd, the love between brothers, the mostly unsaid things, exchanges with looks, no words, knowing one another's thoughts, 
The role that Billy is put in after his parents die, how little he even thinks about it, how little he even thinks at all. Simplicity. In fact, most of the complexity in the novel itself is through the prose. McCarthy's descriptions add layers to the very simple Western-style plot of a lost boy not knowing what he's looking for, but looking just the same. Unable to help it, McCarthy manages to elevate this very simple story better than almost anyone. A real accomplishment in itself, listeners. But then the literary devices at play elevate the novel even further. Of course, this is no surprise to fans of McCarthy's work, but this elevation propels McCarthy forward as one of the undisputed greats of American literature. The dreams the characters have, the foreshadowing in those dreams, the symbolism of the wolf, the subtle hints at the rebellion that looms inside every young man, going against the established order of things, not because they want to, but because they feel they must. Even if it doesn't make sense to Billy at the time, even if he has no idea why he's doing it, it's the gut instinct being followed, their own guiding light, even to their own peril in many cases, leading to Boyd, Billy's younger brother, being shot. The warrior within, aching to release the pent-up rage at the world, find a reason for it. McCarthy manages to capture all of it. One of the most powerful scenes is where we get to see Billy coming of age when he shoots the wolf in the fighting pits in Mexico. It's an incredibly powerful scene where the boy realizes what outcomes, what options he has. And none of them are good, listeners. None of them fair. And he chooses one. The one that he feels is right. And yet, it's such a simple scene. Not much even happens besides a little standoff, some talking, agreements reached. But Billy took action, and McCarthy manages to let it play out in a way that draws a reader through even horrific events with a real beauty, even if it is slightly overdone at times. McCarthy's novels are full of philosophy, but admittedly, it is usually the same philosophy, a dark one, in fact. A sort of chaos of the world type philosophy. How in many of his novels, and especially The Crossing, there are a lot of older, wise characters that relay information to the young men in the books, telling them of the futility of life. And in classic Cormac McCarthy style, these wise elders are often not to be trusted, or often depicted as bitter. And Billy is not as combative as John Grady in All the Pretty Horses, the first novel in the series, but he still distrusts many of the wise older characters that offer him advice on the road. And here's where I will lay a criticism, listeners. In this particular novel, The Crossing, and apart from my personal pet peeves, such as too much description of the wind and how it's blowing at times in the story, there is what I would say almost too much of the wise old character coming in at a point and running into Billy on the road. Just a little too much of it happening over and over again. 
sometimes with little effect or little happening. And while I get this is probably realistic, if living on a well-known road, it begins to get about maybe two or three too many. And to be fair, I do understand the creative process and that this is mostly what novels are. Characters appearing and adding to or changing the story in one direction or another. But it did feel like this book could have been taken down by about 30 or 40 pages and really shined through. It is just a tad too much in this one. And a few of the minor wise old characters that keep coming up start to blur together. But the older characters play a role in a coming-of-age aspect in this novel. They often refer to him as young in Spanish, and we get to see Billy exposed to the classic sort of, I don't want to say tropes, but beats, if you will, of good versus evil. A coming-of-age novel always has to have it, and The Crossing is no different. Many of the run-ins with the older characters present Billy with these lessons on good and evil. What man is capable of, good and bad, ill-intentioned or not. For example, we get many scenes of Billy being taken advantage of by the same wiser older characters, often using his age and inexperience against him. But we really don't see Billy's grief. The main driver of the adventure in the first place until the very end of the novel. And that's after he has lost everything in pursuit of something he doesn't quite understand. And that's really the tragedy of this novel. The grief being realized when it's too late. The evil happening, and then some good coming the way of Billy Parham. In both instances, he never understands why. And that is the philosophical underpinnings in a lot of McCarthy's books. I'm tempted to mention Vonnegut in the same vein, his famous Slaughterhouse-Five saying, Why me? Why anybody? Which, of course, is intended to capture the seeming meaninglessness of it all, as if to imply a universal truth to readers. That there is no particular reason for a good thing to happen to anyone just as there is no particular reason why a bad thing would. It swings both ways, and not always equally either. And it's this sense of unfairness that teaches us about the world. And young men, myself included, always end up fighting with everything we have against that chaos, not understanding that stupid, no good reason of happenstance, randomness, coincidence. And that's the tragedy. That Billy never really got where he was going. Because no matter what direction he chose, the same things played out in the same unequal ways. A hard truth of the world, of life. And while it isn't an emotional ending necessarily, it does suit the overall novel. And admittedly, McCarthy's endings are often a little lackluster, as he doesn't always write an ending. But this one just gives us the image of grief. Billy, alone, on the same road he'd been on at least four times before, if not more. And he feels it. All the death, all the tragedy, all the wrongdoings, 
the first and only time we see him feel anything deeply is on the very last page. Talk about command of the literary craft, listeners. To hold all that in until the last page. As I said, McCarthy is the bar, listeners. But that moment of growing up, of knowing exactly why one feels anything at all, and knowing there isn't anything that can be done about it, necessarily, how acceptance is actually quite hard to come by, and the irony being, so much of growing up seems to be just accepting obstacles. The randomness, the chaos, the no good reasons for anything. And that's what McCarthy gives us here, a beautiful little glimpse of it in the second novel in the Border Trilogy. A tragedy stifled under the weight of the character being too young and too inexperienced to fully understand until he does. Heavy Board. All right, welcome to another edition of Heavy Board. Uh, and today we're discussing Cormac McCarthy's The Crossing, which I believe was published in 1994 originally and as i mentioned already in the monologue listeners that i have the border trilogy where it's all three novels in one and i think that that uh omnibus edition uh was published in 2002 originally uh by picador an imprint of pan macmillan Hmm. interesting the crossing is perhaps the longest novel in this collection of novels three novels when you're, I'm looking at it right now in like this kind of very beat-up old library book version that I bought on Amazon for very cheap. Uh, it actually came with like a little like cover because it's clearly been taped so many times and the spine is busted and it has that patina on the pages that we love so much in the book podcast world. Um, but that's the main version I'm using. Obviously, you can buy this copy. We'll link it in the description, as always. But you can always go out there and buy them separately, one at a time. If you're not a McCarthy fan, you know, start with the first one. Maybe add, read the second and third novel in the trilogy if that's something you find fascinating. Very quickly before we begin, we have released the first Workshop Horror Story episode. And we're looking for a little bit more of that. We're looking for listeners to contribute to what they believe the problems are and the solutions are to workshop culture, the workshop environment, um, the struggles of trying to be a creative writer. Uh, and if you have a workshop horror story or anything like that, please send that into heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. And as many of you already know, we do have a subscription plan. If you go to patreon.com slash heavyboard, you will receive full access to uncensored episodes, bonus episodes, uh, all of Jerk Shop, etc. And that's for subscribers only. For a very modest price, please subscribe. And of course, if you don't want to do that, can't afford it, there are other ways to support this podcast. You can leave us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, that has a, that helps us out. It's a free way to support us. You can also check out our YouTube channels, at Heavyboard and at Heavyboard Clips on YouTube, are our main channel and our Clips channel, where all free episodes and clips are up there for listeners. Give those a like, give those a subscribe, give those a share with your friends and family. It's a free way to support us, and it helps our podcast out. So that's it. That is our housekeeping. And as always, listeners, 
Write in if you just have a disagreement too. If you have something to say, something to add, something you think I missed, um, you know, send that in heavyboardpodcast.gmail.com. I'm happy to go over it. And I want to, as I've said before, kind of start a segment maybe at the beginning of each episode after the monologues or maybe at the end of each episode where I do go into a few, if I get a bunch of emails on something, you know, issue corrections, maybe talk about some of it, you know, what the listener wrote in. Does that make me think about something? Does that change my mind? Do they, you know, I think I'm, that could be a lot of fun. So if you want to communicate, the channels are always open. Put it in the comments on YouTube. Put it in the Patreon comments. Put it in, uh, you know, send us an email. That's all. I'll find it somewhere. But the first thing I wanted to get to about the crossing here is I want to talk about McCarthy's style, as I mentioned in the uh, monologue. And particularly his dialogue style, which isn't necessarily original to him, where he does these kind of no quotation marks, uh, no punctuation to to indicate that it's dialogue. And he does the kind of modernist thing where he'll go into dialogue and then tell you what the dialogue was too, right? So going between a character actually speaking and then having the narration of what the character actually said. And that's used interchangeably. And again, it's kind of a literary device, right? We've seen this in novels before. Uh, I believe on the Virginia Woolf episode, episode nine listeners, you can go back and listen to that. Uh, Cormac McCarthy um, is, is in that vein. I'm sure he's read all those and I'm sure he's a big fan, but let's talk about the dialogue here and let me try to get uh, an example. And in that very first scene, we get like Boyd and uh, Billy and Boyd going out in their farm and running into an Indian who looks like kind of a loner. And he's asking them weird questions, right? So let's just read this little expert excerpt and I can give you a little idea of the dialogue that's happening between this. So the Indian turned and looked at the tank. The only sound was the dripping of water from the horse's raised muzzle. He looked at the boy. You little son of a bitch, he said. I ain't done nothing. Who's that with you? My brother. How old's he? Sixteen. The Indian stood up. He stood immediately and without effort and looked across the tank where Billy stood holding the horse, and then he looked at Boyd again. He wore an old tattered blanket coat and an old greasy Stetson with the crown belled out and his boots were mended with wire. What are you all doing out here? Getting wood? You got anything to eat? No. Where you live at? The boy hesitated. I asked you where you live at. He gestured downriver. How far? I don't know. You little son of a bitch. He put the rifle over his shoulder and walked out down the shore of the tank and stood looking across at the horse and at Billy. Howdy, said Billy. The Indian spat. Spooked everything in the country, ain't you, he said. We didn't know there was anybody here. You ain't got nothing to eat? No, sir. Where you live at? About two miles down the river. You got anything to eat at your house? Yes, sir. I come down there. You going to bring me something out? You can come to the house. Mama will feed you. I don't I don't want to come to the house. I want you to bring me something out. All right. You going to bring me something out? Yes. All right, then. The boy stood holding the horse. The horse hadn't taken its eyes from the Indian. Boyd, he said. Come on. You got dogs down there? Just one. You going to put them up? All right. I'll put them up. So this is like a little excerpt, and I'm just going to go over um, a little bit of the dialogue. So that dialogue, there are no actual quotation marks or anything. The dialogue is just working, and there's very little you'll notice. Uh, where you live at, he said. The boy hesitated. You know, like there's no he said, she said, they said kind of thing. It's, um, or Billy said, I said, right? Like there's just the dialogue. It's just there. It's just presented to you. And 
I know for, for some inexperienced readers or readers that aren't familiar with McCarthy's style, it can be a little confusing at times, but you do get the hang of it as you just keep reading through there. But you'll see there's just like a few moments where it's intermixed with description, with dialogue, and the conversations are always very sparse. Very sparse. Noticed on some of that, right? Where you live at. I asked you where you live at. And there's just like these little tiny things, right? So the Indian in the first section of this novel is, we're meant to see that it's hostile, right? He's kind of hostile to these two brothers that live down the road a few miles and are watering their horses at the same spot. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I think that a lot of people have tried to copy this type of dialogue style from McCarthy, which of course proves what, uh, what type of influence his, he's had over, uh, literature in general, but specifically American literature and specifically the Western genre of American literature. And I don't mean those kind of like, you know, 60s, 70s, 50s cowboy novels. I mean, McCarthy elevates it off the fucking page. And again, if you're a fan, I'm preaching to the choir, but I just want to emphasize, you know, the importance of a character of a writer like this, but also in the dialogue. And I mentioned this in the monologue too, right? Uh, that McCarthy, and with the one exception being Larry McMurtry, too, uh, probably writes these sorts of backwoods rural characters better than anyone I've ever read. Um, there's this kind of, yeah, as I said, apart from McMurtry, uh, as far as I've read, and if there's anybody out there that I think is better, I'd love to hear it from listeners, but again, you'd be hard-pressed to tell me there is anybody who writes about these kind of rural, backwoods characters better than McCarthy, McMurtry, and the like, right? But this is where the dialogue comes in, too. I say especially in the dialogue, right? So the characters, when they're they're not as educated, right? This is, we're talking 1940s, um, New Mexico and Texas, right? Uh, it's hard for a lot of us that didn't go through that to understand what the West was back then, um, especially in the rural parts. You know, the cities were, you know, easy enough to imagine, but going back and seeing the rural parts where the rules were kind of made up as we went along, people going back and forth over the border, you know, there wasn't as much scrutiny and passports as we would have today all the time. So, you know, you can't cross back and forth over the border without showing papers. That really wasn't the case at the time, as this book makes clear. But more importantly, through the dialogue, through that simple dialogue, I just read you one excerpt. I'm going to read you more here later on. But as I mentioned in the monologue, there's this, uh, the characters are uneducated. And therefore, they have to be realistically have this kind of limited self-expression. Only so many thoughts that can be kind of made sense of in their head, right? Only so many ways they know how to express themselves. So when they're feeling something very complex, um, it's it's very difficult. And I think the realism in a lot of McCarthy's work is he shows that the character is struggling through this kind of simple responses in the dialogue, or in the case of Billy, like I already said, uh, no response when he's being fed by you know strangers in their kitchens and uh, they're giving him advice. But this is why I wanted to call it, it's simple-minded, but it isn't stupid, right? Like, there's a difference. And I think this is something that McCarthy manages to capture. It's an in-between space between simple-minded and stupid, right? It's, it's a realism. It's a realistic thing in these exchanges between characters. 
and it's I mean it's not underrated because people understand this in terms of McCarthy's uh, work and genius but I just think it's something that should be recognized especially for listeners that want to really engage with a book like this and McCarthy's larger body of work I haven't read all of his stuff but I've read a lot of it I've read almost all of it uh and as I, as I said, he's an American icon. He's a master. He is the bar. Everybody else writing their little, you know, there's all these little books like, oh, they made a movie about this. They made a movie about this. Again, they are not literary, right? These are the pop murder mystery novels, and everybody swoons over them. But no, this is art. This is high art. And like high art, there are moments of foreshadowing. So page 342 in my version, because this is the big fat collected of all the novels, uh, but it's only about, you know, 40 pages into the novel here, we get our first sense of the dreams and the role that they will play in this novel. And I want to be clear about that, too, that the dreams play a role in this novel with foreshadowing. Uh, again, as I mentioned, a literary device, but it is not kind of a Stephen King-style um, pop use of the dreams. And not even uh, a Dracula or a style of the dreams, where the dreams are foreshadowing, but they aren't entwined in the plot. And even furthermore, the dreams do not play out in the world of the novel the way they do in the character's mind, right? Like the dreams are just kind of vaguely related warnings. So, here, for example, here is one on page 342 and this is Boyd's dream and he's telling Billy about it early on in the novel well what was it there was this big fire out on the dry lake there ain't nothing to burn on a dry lake I know it what happened these people were burning the lake was on fire and they was burning up it's probably something you ate I had the same dream twice maybe you ate the same thing twice I don't think so it ain't nothing it's just a bad dream go to sleep it was real as day I could see it. People have dreams all the time. It don't mean nothing. Then what do they have them for? I don't know. Go to sleep. Billy? What? I had this feeling that something bad was going to happen. There ain't nothing bad going to happen. You just had a bad dream is all. Don't mean something bad is going to happen. What does it mean? Don't mean nothing. Go to sleep. And of course, this is foreshadowing because... Um, about a hundred pages later in the novel, we find out that uh, that Indian that they ran into in the very beginning uh, came back and killed his parents and slit the dog's throat. And uh, the only reason Boyd escaped is because he heard him calling his name and ran off. Uh, but of course, we learn that this dream that Boyd was having about the fire and everyone burning up on the lake and having this bad feeling that something bad's going to happen. Uh, dismissed by his older brother, Billy, the main character, of course. But then we learn that uh, actually he was right, right? He had this kind of foreshadowing that something bad was going to happen to good people like his parents, etc. For no good reason, right? No good reason. And there's other instances, instances of this throughout the novel. Uh, this is just one example. Uh, another one here. Let me see. The thing I want to talk about in terms of symbolism, this kind of foreshadowing, right? And this is when he's uh, uh, trying to take the wolf, right? And we get this kind of, when he's trying to, the, it starts off with uh, Billy Boyd and their father trying to hunt these wolves that are attacking their cows and the neighbor's cows out in the plains, right? 
uh, or I guess high desert, that part of New Mexico. I mean, New Mexico is quite beautiful. If anybody hasn't been there, you should go there. Uh, my wife and I love it. It's uh, incredibly beautiful. There's not a whole lot to do in New Mexico, but the landscape is great. It's like Texas, but better kind of stuff. In terms of the landscape, Texas has better cities, in my opinion, but you know, Albuquerque isn't great. The only really the only reason anybody gives a shit about Albuquerque is because of Breaking Bad and Walter White. So there's that. And Santa Fe is a shell of its former self. But of course, you know, I'm speaking of a time before I was born. But anyway, I get this moment where he's looking for the wolf, right? And uh, this is where I got kind of struck with how symbolic the wolf was being used. Again, a literary device. It kind of a I said it was almost a rebellion, maybe, uh, where it's kind of going against the established order of things. Uh, Billy wanting to trap this wolf and eventually does catch the wolf, but then can't bring himself to kill it. So he wants to set it free in its home in the, the mountains of Mexico. And, uh, you know, it's a kind of a coming of age aspect to it here. But all right. So he's talking. And there's a lot of this book that's in Spanish, so uh, brush up on your Spanish listeners. Uh, but just like when we talked about um, James Baldwin and a lot of the French going into Giovanni's room, like you can kind of read the Spanish without understanding it um, and still know what's going on. You know, it's not like very complex Spanish, but uh, all right, I'm going to read this section from page 352 to 354. The boy didn't know if he understood or not. The old man went on to say that the hunter was a different thing than men supposed. He said that men believe the blood of the slain to be of no consequence, but that the wolf knows better. He said that the wolf is a being of great order, and that it knows what men do not, that there is no order in the world, save that which death has put there. Finally, he said that if men drink the blood of God, yet they do not understand the seriousness of what they do. He said that men wish to be serious, but they do not understand how to be so. Between their acts and their ceremonies lies the world, and in this world, the storms blow, and the trees twist in the wind, and all the animals that God has made go to and fro, yet this world men do not see. They see the acts of their own hands, or they see that which they name and call out to one another, but the world between is invisible to them. You want to catch this wolf, the old man said. Maybe you want the skin so you can get some money. Maybe you can buy some boots or something like that. You can do that, but where is the wolf? The wolf is like the capo de nieve. Snowflake, snowflake. You catch the snowflake, but when you look in your hand, you don't have it no more. Maybe you see this dechado, but before you can see it, it is gone. If you want to see it, you have to see it on its own ground. If you catch it, you lose it. And where it goes, there is no coming back from. Not even God can bring it back. And again, you see this kind of dialogue where he's telling us what the person said, but not actually putting it in dialogue. And this is actually in paragraph form, so it isn't even like single lines of dialogue back and forth. But this was a passage where it really stood out to me that like the importance of the wolf, right? Said that the wolf is a being of great order and that it knows what men do not. That there is no order in the world save that which death has put there. 
And again, getting back to those philosophies I mentioned in the monologue, and I think this passage is the first mention of it explicitly and the themes we're supposed to take away from it, this kind of young man's rebellion against the established order, even if they don't know necessarily why they're attempting this. And I think somebody like McCarthy and other masculine, very masculine writers like this capture it beautifully, uh, despite people shitting on them for it. All right, let's move on. Damn, I have... Uh... I don't have so many pages, but I don't have so many pages of notes, but I do have enough that it's like, oh, fuck, you know, how do I keep talking about it? It's because this novel is so rich. I can talk about it for hours. So let's move ahead a little bit here. Uh, page 431 in my version. And there's this little bit, and this is the really important scene that I mentioned of the coming of age, right? Where he's been over the border, he's got this wolf with him. The wolf is a wild animal, right? It's not quite uh, uh, behaving, etc. And he gets into some trouble. Uh, and the wolf is taken from him by the authorities in Mexico. And he follows them, being like, I want the wolf back. And of course, he learns that um, they're putting the wolf in a fighting pit. They're chaining the wolf up, putting it in a fighting pit, and having it fight dogs. And, you know, the boy, there's nothing he can do. Because he, he goes in and, and at first tries to take the wolf off the chain that they have the wolf chained to. And then they all draw guns on him, right? This young 17-year-old boy in the middle of this, knowing that what they're doing is wrong, but there's nothing he can do. And then eventually when he has to realize that he has to kill the wolf himself, almost a mercy killing, right? He does have to kill this wolf that he didn't want to kill. He wanted to set it free. And look what he did to it instead. It was like, it was, it was his fault, not really his fault, but it, you know, his actions led up to it, right? That this wolf was captured and forced to kind of be this kind of fighting pit dog. But uh, I just want to read the one. It's a very short paragraph. In a lot of McCarthy's stuff, there's a very short paragraph that packs a huge punch. So here's the one with McCarthy uh, with the killing the wolf, page 431. He stepped over the parapet and walked toward the wolf and levered a shell into the chamber of the rifle and halted 10 feet from her and raised the rifle to his shoulder and took aim at the bloodied head and fired. And that's like one paragraph, one sentence. And then, of course, that, like, ends the dog fighting, and he gets out of there, kind of. There's, like, a little bit of confusion, but it was kind of the end of the fight, and they kind of just let him go because he's young. But, yeah, I just thought this was incredibly powerful um, of the bond between the boy and the wolf that we see in the first hundred pages, and then the boy being forced to kill what he loves to, to help it, to save it from this torture. Uh... A very powerful image. Very, um, there's a beauty to it, but it's very harrowing. And if you, you, you see the way I read this too, it was, it was so matter of fact that the violence sometimes almost goes unnoticed. And I, I noticed this when I first time I read Blood Meridian. Maybe I'll do an episode on that too. Uh, listeners, let me know if you'd be interested in me doing a Blood Meridian episode. I'll try to space it out since I'm doing all these McCarthy book right now, but... Uh, the first time I read that, I remember thinking like some of the violence went over my head first read because it's just so matter of fact and sterile that you don't even realize how horrific a lot of the violence is uh, until you read it a few times. You know, you're like, oh, wait a minute. You know, you think about it, reflect as novels often force us to do. Let's move on into the second section, 
And on page 450, 451, we get uh, another kind of wise old character uh, who is kind of a caretaker of a collapsed church in kind of an abandoned part of the Mexi rural Mexico. And uh, this wide older character kind of giving gives Billy this kind of coming age kind of advice uh, about running away and another big theme in this the kind of conflict between freedom and responsibility right uh the product the paradox of freedom stories and their meanings and there's just a huge kind of uh let me read the whole thing or just an excerpt here uh again excuse my bad spanish uh, the man gestured with a small toss of one hand. I came here as a heretic fleeing a prior life. I was running away. You come here to hide out? I came because of the devastation. Sir? The devastation from the terremoto. Yes, sir. I was seeking evidence for the hand of God in the world. I had come to believe that hand a wrathful one, and I thought that men had not inquired sufficiently into miracles of destruction into disasters of a certain magnitude. I thought there might be evidence that had been overlooked. I thought he would not trouble himself to wipe away every handprint. My desire to know was very strong. I thought it might even amuse him to leave some clue. What sort of clue? I don't know. Something. Something unforeseen. Something out of place. Something untrue or out of round. A track in the dirt a fallen bauble, not some cause, I can tell you that, not some cause, causes only multiply themselves, they lead to chaos, what I wanted was to know his mind, I could not believe he would destroy his own church without reason, you think maybe the people that lived here had done something bad, the man smoked thoughtfully, I thought it possible, yes, possible, as in the cities of the plain little foreshadowing there, listeners. I thought there might be evidence of something suitably unspeakable, such that he might be goaded into raising his hand against it. Something in the rubble, in the dirt, under the vegas. Something dark. Who could say? What did you find? Nothing. A doll. A dish. A bone. He leaned and stubbed out the cigarette in a clay bowl on the table. I am here because of a certain man. I came to retrace his steps, perhaps to see if there were not some alternate course. What was here to be found was not a thing. Things separate from their stories. Things separate from their stories have no meaning. They are only shapes of a certain size and color, a certain weight. When their meaning has become lost to us, they no longer have even a name. The story, on the other hand, can never be lost from its place in the world, for it is that place. And that is what was to be found here, the corrido, the tale. And like all corridos, it ultimately told one story only, for there is only one to tell. The cat shifted and stirred, the fire creaked in the stove. Outside in the abandoned village, the profoundest silence. What is the story? The boy said. In the town of Caborca, on the Alta River, there was a man who lived there who was an old man. He was born in Caborca, and in Caborca he died. Yet he lived once in this town. And it goes on from there, but you get this kind of idea of the kind of the idea, right? This kind of conflicting advice 
being given, about running away, about how stories and their meanings and the kind of stories, the places, um, how the stories outlive the places, even when they're dead, right? We have this decayed church in the scenes before this where Billy's kind of wandering around and finds this decayed uh, church and this kind of caretaker who I believe is blind or that may be another wise old character that comes in and is like blind and it's given him it's it like I said there's a little too many of the wise old characters here and it's noticeable that this is the longest book in the trilogy uh you could have easily cut out a few pages here to make it not but at least that's my opinion you know listeners chime in let me know what you think Billy's parents dying is a super tragedy I will avoid that uh, actually, let me read a little bit because it just shows us a little something about this tragedy and just kind of how matter-of-fact it is. So this is after Billy comes home, after being down in Mexico, and he sees that his uh, entire family was murdered. And uh, besides his brother, the dog's throat was cut. The sheriff looked up from his desk. He pursed his thin lips. My name's Billy Parham, the boy said. I know who you are. Come on in. Sit down. He sat in a chair opposite the sheriff's desk and put his hat on his knee. Where have you been, son? Mexico. Mexico. Yes, sir. What caused you to run off? I didn't run off. Were you having trouble at home? No, sir. Pop never allowed it. The sheriff leaned back in his chair. He tapped his lower lip with his forefinger and contemplated the ragged figure before him. Pale with road dust, thin to emaciation, a rope holding up his trousers. What were you doing in Mexico? I don't know. I just went down there. You just got a wild hair up your ass and there wasn't nothing else to do but but for you to go off to Mexico? Is that what you're telling me? Yes, sir. I reckon. The sheriff reached and pushed a stapled sheet of paper, stapled set of papers from the edge of the desk and squared them with his thumb. He looked at the boy. What do you know about this business, son? I don't know nothing about it. I come here to ask you. The sheriff sat watching him. All right, he said. That's your story. You'll be held to it. It ain't a story. All right. We took trackers down there. There was six horses left out of there. Mr. Sanders says he thinks that's all the horses there was on the place. Is that right? Yes, sir. There was seven counting mine. Jay Tom and his boy said that there was two of them and that they left out with the horses about two hours before daylight. They could tell that? They could tell that. They showed up down there on foot? Yes. What does Boyd say? Boy don't say nothing. He run off and hid. He laid out in the cold all night and walked up to Sanders the next day and they couldn't get no sense out of him. Miller had to get in the truck and drive down there and find that mess. They'd been shot with a shotgun. Billy looked past the sheriff and out to the street. He tried to swallow, but he couldn't. The sheriff watched him. First thing they done was they caught the dog and cut its throat. Then they sat and waited to see would anybody come out. They waited there long enough that one of them went to take a leak. They waited to see that everybody was asleep again before the dog quit barking and all. Were they Mexicans? They was Indians. Or J. Tom says they was Indians. I reckon he would know. The dog never died. What? I said the dog never died. Boyd's got it. It's mute as a stone. The boy sat looking at the grease-stained hat cocked on his knee. What kind of guns did they get? The sheriff said. The sheriff said, there wasn't any to get. The old gun, only gun on the place was a forty-four, was a forty-four forty carbine, and I had that with me. Wasn't much use to him, was it? No, sir. We got nothing to go on. You know that. Yes, sir. Have you? Have I what? Do you know anything you ain't told me? Have you got jurisdiction in Mexico? No. 
And what difference does it make? That ain't much of an answer. No, it ain't. It's about like yours. The sheriff watched him for a while. If you think I don't care about this, he said, you're wrong as hell. The boy sat. He put the back of his forearm to one eye and then the other and turned and looked out the window again. There was no traffic in the street. Out on the sidewalk, two women were talking in Spanish. Could you give me a description of the horses? Yes, sir. Was any of them branded? One of them was. That Nino horse. Pat bought him off of a Mexican. The sheriff nodded. All right, he said. He leaned down and pulled out a drawer in his desk and took out a tin deed, took out a tin deed box and put it on top of the desk and opened it. I don't guess I'm supposed to give you this stuff, he said. But I don't always do what I'm told. You got any place to keep it? I don't know. What's in there? Papers, marriage license, birth certificates. There's some papers on horses in here, but most of them goes back a few years. Your mama's wedding ring is in here. What about Pop's watch? There wasn't no watch. There's some household effects out at the Webster's. If you want, I'll put those. Pa- I'll put these papers in the bank. They ain't even appointed to a conservator, so I don't know what else to do with them. There ought to be papers on Nino and on that Bailey horse. The sheriff turned the box around and slid it across the desk. The boy began to thumb through the documents. Who's Margarita Evelyn Parham, the, the sheriff said. My sister. Where is she at? She's dead. How come her How come her to have a Mexican name? She was named after my grandmother. Anyway, I'm not going to keep going on with that, but that's just like huge, tragic, powerful scene. And it just, I was getting kind of caught up in it, even rereading it now, just kind of incredible. Uh, and there's like all that tragedy that you get at this and you don't even realize it. And just to show that that kind of expression, that kind of underdeveloped expression. Um, but then you get kind of the setup is like, okay, these six horses were stolen from his parents and they were murdered for these horses. So then they go down with him and his brother trying to, uh, you know, find the horses, uh, take them back because they're rightfully their property. And then they get uh, down there. They're starting to go to a few different uh, horse dealers down between Mexico and Texas. And while I think where they're talking with one of them, uh, so Boyd and Billy are talking with this guy. He says, why don't you ask him why he wants us to go home, said Boy. I will tell you why he wants this. Because he knows what perhaps you do not. That the past cannot be mended. You think everyone is a fool. But there are not so many reasons for you to be in Mexico. Think of that. Let's go, said Boyd. We are close to the truth here. I do not know what that truth is. I am no gypsy fortune teller, but I see great trouble in store. Great trouble. You should listen to your brother. He is older. So are you. The ganadero leaned back in his chair, leaned back in the chair. He looked at Billy. Your brother is young enough to believe that the past still exists, he said, that the injustices within it await his remedy. Perhaps you believe this also? I don't have an opinion. I'm just down here about some horses. What remedy can there be? What remedy can there be for what is not? You see? And where is the remedy that has no unforeseen consequence? What act does not assume a future that is itself unknown? I quit this country once before, Billy said. It wasn't the future that brought me back here. Uh, a little bit down, a little bit down, as if he held something unseen shut within an unseen box. You do not know what things you set in motion, he said. No man can know, no prophet foresee. The consequences of an act are often quite, are often quite different from what one would guess. You must be sure that the intention in your heart 
is large enough to contain all wrong turnings, all disappointments. Do you see? Not everything has such a value. And I thought that was an important thing to kind of emphasize in here, this idea of repeating the past, right? That like people believe that they have a remedy, especially to past injustices, right? Things that I talked about in the monologue where there's no rhyme or reason necessarily. There's just plenty of unfairness to go around. Um, And of course, we can point to certain moments in history, but I just mean chasing the past. So this kind of like tale as old as time with this wise older character, McCarthy's novel, you know, full of philosophy being like, you think there's a remedy to this? You think that you going down here, rounding up these stolen horses is going to bring you peace? You think that's going to fix what happened? You know, that your family was fucking murdered? It won't. And you won't realize that until you've given up so much to go down there and get them, right? And of course, this is another moment of foreshadowing where we see at the end that that actually is what happens. At a certain point, he gets almost all six horses back, and then he loses them all again, right? And he's nowhere closer to where he started. And in fact, he actually lost his brother because of that. He lost his horse, his dog, everything, right? There is no remedy to injustices. Like, I, I know that this is a big topic in, in today's culture and stuff. Everyone wants to talk about justice, restorative justice. And I think we'd all be well to uh, be reminded of this wise old character in McCarthy's novel here. There is no remedy. Like, what do you think is going to happen? And the unforeseen consequences of trying to remedy a past atrocity is just... It's never going to work out the way we think it is. But this is, you know, it's a coming of age story. So it's full of these. And it's, it's be- again, buy this book, read it, put it on your shelf. Uh, and I'll jump ahead very quickly. I'm taking too much time with it, I guess. But, you know, it's a good book. All right. Page 599 in this version. And uh, this is when he, okay, this is the blind man. So I was confused. Again, there's so many fucking wiser, older characters he keeps running into, keeps running into people at this fucking churches and things. And there's blind men and there's fucking cats and pets. And it all starts to blur together eventually. Uh, And this is the blind man, again, giving him more advice here. And this is kind of the idea of good and evil uh, that I mentioned in the monologue. And this is a very powerful moment. Uh, kind of summarizing the coming-of-age aspect of this story, whereas Billy keeps getting lessons from elders uh, or taken advantage of by elders. Uh, and a lot of them view him as dumb, you know, a child, uh, trying to achieve justice and always failing, you know, losing everything in the pursuit, which is the tragedy of this entire novel. That's what we we see. And he'd been treated pretty poorly by a lot of people here up until this point. And that's one of the other things I tried to point out in the monologue is how Billy in this, you know, he's getting people being good and kind to him. And he's getting people being evil and mean to him, both for seemingly no reason, right? We can't really determine why people are doing one thing or the other. And this ambiguity is where the main philosophical underpinnings lie in a lot of McCarthy's work, which again makes him a master of this. All right, I'll read this long kind of, it's a long paragraph, but I'm going to read this section of it. This is the blind man. Oh, and this is in the middle of a story being told by the blind man. Uh, He said that while one would like to say that God will punish those who do such things, and that people often speak in just this way, it was his experience that God could not be spoken for, and that men with wicked histories 
often enjoyed lives of comfort and that they died in peace and were buried with honor. He said that it was a mistake to expect too much of justice in this world. He said that the notion that evil is seldom rewarded was greatly overspoken, for if there were no advantage to it, then men would shun it, and how could virtue then be attached to its repudiation? It was the nature of his profession that his experience with death should be greater than for most, and he said that while it was true that time heals bereavement, it does so only at the cost of the slow extinction of those loved ones from the heart's memory which is the sole place of their abode, then or now. Faces fade, voices dim, seize them back, speak with them, call their names. Do this and do not let sorrow die, for it is the sweetening of every gift. But I thought that was really important in terms of these kind of, we, we like to pretend that we know who the evil people are and who the good people are and then what motivates them. Uh, you see this a lot, particularly in um, culture now, right? There is um, a good versus evil mentality to everything. Uh, and it's usually political listeners. Again, everybody wants to talk about how I'm not seeing the bigger picture. Or I am partisan or something. It's not like I'm seeing what's happening. Uh, and there is a religious-like emphasis on good versus evil. And it's hurting people. But it's interesting that right after we get kind of this scene where uh, we kind of get the foreshadowing of Billy losing everything in pursuit, and we get a couple moments of foreshadowing in that with older characters, right after we see this kind of horrible thing, and then uh, Billy gets shot, or no, Boyd gets shot right after this, it's interesting and it's very McCarthy-like to right after we see Boyd getting shot and all this miserable stuff happening, their horses getting taken again. We get the scene of the doctor doing good for free. Again, no particular reason, right? And Billy tries to pay him. Billy rides out to get the doctor for save his brother's life. And the doctor is like, okay, you know, do you can you pay? And Billy said, you can have my horse, right? Because uh, I want to save my brother. And the doctor says, I don't want your horse. And he just does it for free, right? Uh, and again, it's this contrast. It's this contradicting contrast. And of course, this is life, right? This is the world. This is realistic. This is realism. I, I guess I can't overstate enough how powerful this is. Like kind of how these, these moments that, um, just unbelievable, uh, great great fucking novel and of course the doctor is then you know dead only days later right when when billy comes back to try and thank him doctor's already dead they, there's nothing they can do right they don't even tell you what he died i guess it was sickness or something oh he got sick right a chill in the night you know it was 1940s i mean i'm feeling it again just reading sections of it how powerful mccarthy's prose is particularly the kind of dialogue between characters and the dynamic of a young boy coming of age and the older wiser kind of archetypical character um, and of course that goes on and on right another one same story that i was already reading from he said that like every man who comes to the end of something there was nothing to be done but to begin again uh, all right, and I'll speed this up because I've been talking for a while here. But, you know, we start getting dreams again where Boyd comes back in Billy's dreams. Um, 
uh, what am I thinking of? Dreams kind of telling the future. Uh, we keep seeing all the, you know, it comes back in the same literary devices used in these ways. Uh, but let's get to the ending. So the ending, I'm going to read this section where the ending, you know, it's, it's kind of, I would even say that I could understand somebody saying uh, it's a little lackluster. I'm going to read you the final paragraph. And this is after all the stuff and he'd lost everything again. He walked out. A cold wind was coming down off the mountains. It was shearing off the western slopes of the continent where the summer snow lay above the timberline and it was crossing through the high fir forests and among the poles of the aspens and it was sweeping over the desert plain below. It had ceased raining in the night and he walked out on the road and called for the dog. He called and called, standing in that inexplicable darkness where there was no sound anywhere save only the wind. After a while, he sat in the road. He took off his hat and placed it on the tarmac before him, and he bowed his head and held his face in his hands and wept. He sat there for a long time, and after a while the east did gray, and after a while the right and God-made sun did rise once again, for all and without distinction. And what I'll say here is... uh. A lot of McCarthy's endings, as I mentioned in the monologue, they're a little lackluster in places. Um, I think they're not not necessarily unsatisfying, but not... Uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is the problem is, is that most McCarthy books have no endings, uh, which can be an advantage. That's not necessarily a bad thing, right? I like a lot of books and stories that just end, right? And was it Billy Wilder that said, the famous screenwriter-director listeners, uh, who said... Uh, you want a happy ending or a sad ending? Well, that just depends on where you choose to end the story, right? Uh, because you can end it on a sad moment or a happy moment, and, you know, 20 pages later it could be reversed. So it's just a matter of where you choose to end it. McCarthy usually chooses some some weird moments, sometimes even unhopeful, unho sometimes unhopeful. But a lot of times I think he just kind of writes no ending, uh, which can be an advantage, but also I think it can seem meandering at times uh, that not having an ending written um, can cause a certain flattening out, uh, almost stifling the real tragedy in a way. Um, and again, I'm just speculating here. I, I'd be interested to hear what listeners think about this. Uh but it's interesting, you know, I read that last paragraph, I think it works, but I think it's a little lackluster, I thought the cities of the plain, or no, uh, I thought uh, all the pretty horses, I thought that ending was a little lackluster too, like it wasn't great, but I guess coming of age endings are never really great, but um, you know, it's hard, it's hard to write a good ending, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, you know, all that other stuff, but yeah. That is Cormac McCarthy's The Crossing. Get yourself a copy. Uh, I'll link the Border Trilogy, the big fat one that I have and I used in this one in the description as always. And reminder to everyone, we have a subscription plan. If you go to patreon.com slash heavyboard, you can become a subscriber and get full uncensored episodes for subscribers only, bonus content, all that good stuff. We have a couple good ones coming up, by the way. If you don't want to do that, 
can't afford it. There are other ways to support us. You can leave us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. You can become uh, a subscriber on our YouTube channels, at Heavy Board and at Heavy Board Clips on YouTube. Subscribe, like, share with your friends and family. That helps us out, helps us grow. It's free. And of course, a final announcement, I'm still looking for workshop horror stories or workshop stories and thoughts in general. If you have one of those, send that to heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, we actually have a few guests lined up for that. So that's going to be a lot of fun once we start having guests come in for that. So you got something to say, something to add, you want your story told, you want something to laugh, discuss it, whatever it is, you send that in, heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, everything's linked in the descriptions. So, this has been Heavy Board. See ya. Heavy Board. Heavy. I am Heavy, Heavy, Heavy Board. Sweats and the day sweats, pal. Pal, I do.